Humam al Balawi. It's a difficult name to say. Uh, my guess is that you have never heard of him, but he was a man born in Jordan, and he was a doctor, and he worked for the CIA. And his job with the CIA was to infiltrate Al-Qaeda, and he did it. He infiltrated this terrorist organization, and for many years, he fed the CIA information about Al-Qaeda's activities. Finally, it came for a meeting between Al-Balawi and the CIA. They'd never met in person before. And so in Afghanistan, Al-Balawi made his way into the compound of the CIA. And when he got in, he detonated a suicide vest, killing six CIA officers and two other personnel. In that camp in Afghanistan, the CIA were so concerned about the threat from outside. They were concerned about the Taliban attacking them with rockets and missiles. They were concerned by the threat from outside. But the most deadly attack on the CIA in 25 years actually came from within. Nehemiah and God's people, they've been doing a great work. They've been rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They're, they're doing this work that God has called them to, and it's going so well. The people, they're working side by side. They're laboring in this cause, and the walls are being built, and God's work is being done, and it's tremendous. Then last week, we saw from John's sermon and from, from Nehemiah 4 and 6 that there were attacks from outside, threats, intimidations, all of those things bombarding them from the outside but they had no effect. God's work continued. And last week we found out, didn't we, that when, when God's people do God's work in God's way, the enemy attacks. He tries to stop it, but he had failed. The attacks from outside had failed. There's a Christian author called Warren Wearsby. He's a speaker as well. And he writes something very interesting about the attacks of the enemy on the work of God and on the people of God. And he says this, he says, when the enemy feels in his attacks from the outside, he then begins to attack from within. And one of his favorite weapons is selfishness. When the enemy tries to attack the church from outside and fails, Warren Wearsby says that he moves within the congregation and he tries to destroy the work that God is doing through selfishness. And this is exactly what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. What we see going on inside the walls of Jerusalem is the thing that threatens the work that God is doing. If you notice at the start of Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1, it, it opens with an outcry from some of God's people within the walls. There's all sorts of people working on the walls, rich and poor, young and old, men and women. They're working together, doing this great work. Well, within the walls, there is an outcry from a group of God's people. They cry out. They complain. 
Something is going wrong. Something is not right. And sometimes in churches and in families, you know, we, we can complain and cry out about silly things, can't we? Well, this was not a silly thing they were crying out about. They weren't crying out about the color of the stone they were using in the wall. Nothing like that. They were crying out because some people were being exploited in this time. They were being exploited. The people who were crying out were the poor people in the community, the people who'd left their farms, who'd left their small incomes to come and work at the wall. And what's happening is that as they're working on the wall, they're being opposed and oppressed by the rich. You see three problems they identify, and you see them in verses 2, 3, and 4, and 5. Look at problem 1 in verse 2. Some people within the, the church family, if you like, have got no food. They're starving. Look at verse 2. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Nehemiah, you know we're from big families here, and, and you know that our men have gone off to, to work on the wall, and we're really glad they've gone off to work on the wall. But Nehemiah, we're, we're now starting to starve. We've big families to feed here, and we've got no food. We've got no food in our cupboards. We've got no food growing on, in our land. We're, we're, we're skint and we're starving, Nehemiah. Help us. That's group one. Then we see another problem in, in verse three. And this is the second problem is that, that some people, whilst they've got no food, they've got land and they've got possessions and they've got property. And so what they're having to do just to get food to survive is they're having to go to the rich people in society and pawn their goods. They're having to pawn their land just to get food to survive. Look at verse 3. Others were saying, we have mortgaged our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Nehemiah, we're, we're so desperate. The land that we've had, we've had to go to the rich people and, and give it to them in order to get money to buy grain. We hope to get it back one day, but, but we don't know if we're ever going to be able to. But this is what's happening, Nehemiah. We're having to, to, to pawn everything we own just to get grain to survive. And then problem three is probably the saddest of all. So you've got some people and, and they, they've had no food. And then they've pawned all of their, their possessions. So they've nothing to, to pawn to get money. But they owe a big tax. The Persian tax is coming. And they need a loan of money. And so what are the rich people saying? They're saying, well, listen, we'll loan you money. But we need something, you know, a security. You need to give us something that we'll let you borrow this money. Give us your children. We'll take them as slaves. They can work for us. They can be our possession now. We'll keep them. And then whenever you can pay the money back, well, then you'll get them back. And look, you see that in verses 4 and 5. Look at their cry. Still others are saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we're of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, these rich men, and although our sons and daughters are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Nehemiah, some of our daughters, they've already been enslaved. But we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Nehemiah, we, we don't know how we're going to get them back. We have no way of making money. 
we've already pawned our vineyards and our and our fields. See what's happened. Working on the wall, some of the people are totally fine. The rich people are fine. They, they've got crops stored up at home. They've got land. They've got money. They've got wealth. They've got possessions. The rich people are fine. They can give of their time freely and it doesn't really affect them in any way. But then you have these people at the other end of the spectrum who are poor. These people who live hand to mouth. These people who've got zero savings in the bank. These people who've got zero food in the cupboard. And they've left their homes and they've come and they're working on the wall and they're giving them all themselves to the work of God. And now their wives back home are saying, what are we going to do? We're, we're skint. We've got nothing in the cupboards. We need help, Nehemiah. We've got, we need help. The poor people are struggling and the rich people are doing just fine. But you know what makes these circumstances worse? It's not actually that the rich people are doing just fine. It's that the rich people are causing these problems for the poor people. The rich people in this time of working on the wall are actually exploiting those with nothing. They're being selfish. It's them who are causing the problem. I don't know if you remember Hurricane Katrina, which came in 2005. I remember seeing it on the news and the devastation that was caused in New Orleans. Do you remember that, any of you? The thing, though, that struck me most whenever I watched the news reports was not the devastation. That was awful. But the thing that struck me most was how people responded. Because you know what most people did, or it seemed on the news? It seemed that most people, whenever the hurricane struck, acted selfishly. Do you remember what they did? They went into the shops and they looted them. They went into the homes that have been kind of broken open by the hurricane and they went into people's homes and they took everything they could get. Here are these people having had their businesses and their homes devastated. And yet these people took advantage of that situation for their own gain. And this is exactly what is happening here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Because if you look carefully at verse 1, do you see what the outcry is? The outcry is not, we've had to work on the wall and now we're skint. Look at the, out, look at the outcry carefully. The outcry is against their fellow brothers. Now the men and their wives raised an outcry against who? Against Nehemiah for calling them to work? No against their Jewish brothers. It's God's own rich people who are causing these problems for God's own poor people. It's God's people who are making life hard for God's people. It's followers of God who are making life difficult for other followers of God. You know what should have been happening here, don't you? Here are these people, and their men are away working on the wall. Here are these families with, with lots of children, and they've got no grain. They're over here, 
And then you've got the rich people over here and they have storehouses full of the stuff. What should be happening there? It's not rocket science, is it? The rich people with all of this excess should be going to the poor people and saying, listen, it's brilliant that your men are away at work on the wall. Let us look after you. Let us take care of you. That should have been happening, shouldn't it? But it wasn't. Love your neighbor as yourself. We, we think that was said by Jesus, and it was, but that wasn't the first place it was said. It was said in the book of Leviticus. It was one of the foundational laws that God's people were to obey. And the rich people, when the poor people had nothing, they didn't love them as themselves. Instead, they let them starve. And then when they were starving, the, the poor people finally went to the rich people and they said to them, listen, we, we really need grain, we really need food, can you help us? And the rich people said, of course we can help you, we've got loads of grain. So if you just give us your field, that will act as a security and then you can buy your field back. Just give us your, your, your olive groves and we'll give you grain. What possessions have you got? If, if you give those to us, then we'll give you grain. Do you see what they're doing? Exploiting them, abusing them, taking advantage of them. Why? Because they were being selfish. Completely and utterly selfish. The, these rich people within the congregation of God's people were causing division, they were causing suffering, they were causing strife within. And sooner or later, if this continued and continued and continued, the men working on the wall were going to have to go back to their homes and try to sort things out. The work on the wall was going to collapse. The city wasn't going to be finished. God's work was not going to be done because of the problems within the walls themselves. This is the problem that's set before us in verses 1 to 5. God's people are making life difficult for God's people within the walls. That hits close to home, doesn't it? That can happen in the church, can't it? Some people can almost make it their ambition within the church to annoy other people to make life hard for them, to oppose them, to speak badly of them. This hits close to home because it happens within churches. So the people, they, they cry out to Nehemiah. Uh, and what's amazing is that Nehemiah hears their cry. Um, I don't know about you, but I actually have hearing problems. Did you know that? I have, I have two hearing problems. Now, you might not have known that about me. Now, whenever I say I have hearing problems, I don't mean there's actually anything wrong with my ears. But I do have two hearing problems. And the first hearing problem is this. Whenever I'm really engrossed in something, whenever I'm really focused on something, I can't really hear anyone else around me. So if you catch me standing here sometime sending a text message to someone and you come up and you tell me something really bad going on in your life, I'm really sorry, but I will not hear you because I'm so engrossed in this. Or if I'm at home and I'm reading a book or I'm watching a film, dear help Emma, I don't hear her. 
I'm so engrossed, I'm so focused on, on what I'm doing, I, I don't hear those around me. That's the first hearing problem I have. The second hearing problem I have is selective hearing. Hearing what I want to hear and letting the things that I just don't want to hear, I just let them go in one ear and out the other. I just pretend that I haven't heard them. You know, so I'm in the study, I'm doing a little bit of work. Emma's got my Joshua and Micah and she's doing a brilliant job with him uh, and she's busy doing Joshua's homework at the table and Micah has a dirty nappy and so Emma says, Marty, could, could you come and change Micah's nappy? I'm just doing Joshua's homework with him. Oh, I didn't hear her. <laughs> Selective hearing, we, we hear what we want to hear sometimes and sometimes we're so focused on something we, we just don't hear anything around us. Maybe you've got those hearing problems too. Hopefully I'm not alone. And what amazes me with Nehemiah is that, that he could have had both of those types of hearing. Why was Nehemiah in Jerusalem? He was there to build the wall. He was there to do the project. Very, very sort of man-centered thing. I'm, I'm there to do a job and that's why he's in Jerusalem. I'm there to build the, the wall. And he's been focused on that. That has been his one aim. That has been his one goal. Everything he's been doing in Jerusalem has been for this end. And that is his focus, completing this wall, getting it built up. Focused. Build the wall. Do this. And the people cry out over here. They, they come to him and, and they're telling, Nehemiah, there's a problem. And what, surpri what surprises me and impresses me so much about Nehemiah is that he takes his focus off the wall, off the project, and he gives his focus and his attention to the people. Project and people. And Nehemiah values the people over the project. Nehemiah is there. He's there to build the wall. He wants to get on with it. Everyone's doing the work on the wall. It's all going well. They're working together. They're getting on with the work. He wants to get it finished and he hears this outcry and he knows that if he listens to that, he's going to have to stop building the wall to deal with this problem. It's going to slow the whole project down. He could just ignore them and, and continue plowing on with building the wall. But he chooses to hear. He doesn't have selective hearing. He, he hears the outcry of the people. He's focused on the project, but when the outcry comes, the focus turns to the people. And why is that? It's because Nehemiah knows that God values people. God values people even over projects. God values people even over tasks that he's given us to do. God loves people. He cares for people. He's interested in people. He's interested in you. He loves you and he cares for you. And so Nehemiah's priority shifts when he hears the outcry from the project to the people. And he hears their cry. He hears what they say. Do we listen to people around us? Are we so focused on projects? Are we so focused on doing things 
Are we so focused on, on stuff that people don't matter to us like they should? It's a challenging thought, isn't it? But Nehemiah, he, he values the people because God values them. And this problem, it's, it's so big that it, it just can't be ignored. If this issue is not dealt with, not only will the wall be destroyed, but the community of God's people will be destroyed. This is a big problem. And so Nehemiah, having heard the outcry, he then addresses the problem. I've heard this wonderful saying, which I think is true of Northern Ireland. There is no problem so big, it cannot be ignored. Aren't we brilliant in Northern Ireland at ignoring problems? I don't know if it's just me, but I'm really good at ignoring problems. A problem comes and I'm good at kind of sweeping it under the carpet. A problem comes and I'm good at just kind of swerving around it to ignore it. A problem comes and and I'm just brilliant at ignoring it. And my guess is that, that most of us, our default position is whenever a problem is coming at us head on, we want to try to, to dodge it, to avoid it. We don't like dealing with problems, especially problems that might lead to some sort of confrontation. Especially problems that might bring us face to face with others who the problem is with. We prefer being passive aggressive, don't we, than dealing with the problem. That's what we like to do. We have a problem with someone, they have a problem with us. We never talk about it. We're just kind of hostile to each other, but with a smile on our faces. Passive, aggressive. But Nehemiah, he doesn't do this. Nehemiah deals with the issue. Nehemiah is brave enough to, to take the bull by the horns and, and deal with the issue that's arisen, deal with this problem that has the potential to wreck everything. And so the first thing he does is he, he addresses the problem. He addresses it. And what's interesting is he, he feels really angry about what's happened. Do you notice that? Look at verse 6. When I heard the outcry of these charges, I was angry. This is wrong. This is awful. This is an outrage. He's really, really angry at what has happened. And he's right to be angry. This is a wrong thing that's being done. This is not right. He's right to be angry. It's a just and righteous anger. But notice the first thing that happens. He doesn't act on his anger. He doesn't go before the people with his big red face and his big angry eyes and start yelling at them and address the problem then. No, do you see what he does? He, he lets his anger drive him to doing something, but he doesn't act out of anger. In his anger, he does not sin. Instead, he, he, he calms himself down and he thinks about what needs to be done. There's a lesson for us here, isn't there? We know what that's like, don't we? When we react in anger without stopping and calming down and thinking. We've all said that thing that we wish we could put back into our mouth. We've all written that text message or that Facebook post or that email and hit send that we wish we could delete. Nehemiah, he, he's angry at what's happened. It's wrong, but he doesn't 
burst out and act in his anger. Instead, look at verse seven. He says, I pondered them in my mind. I, I pondered the situation. I thought about it. And then what does he do? He then, in his calmness and having thought it through, he then does something about it. In verse seven, you see that he goes to the people who are in the wrong and he talks to them privately. And he just brings the issue up. Look at verse seven. He says, you're exacting ursery from your own countrymen. You're charging your own people interest. You're ripping them off. He puts the issue on the table. Presumably, they just kind of ignore him and they don't care. They don't seem bothered by it. And so what does he do next? He then holds a meeting, a public gathering. And this is like a courtroom type setting with the whole assembly of God's people there. And in verse 7, he's outlined what the oppressors are doing. And then what he does, he tries to help them see why what they're doing is wrong. And he appeals to different things. Verse 8, he appeals to their conscience. Hey guys, look at verse 8. I'm not going to read it directly. I'm going to try to help you understand. Hey guys, listen, you know that that we've been buying people out of slavery in foreign countries and bringing them home. You know we've been doing that, don't you? And yet here you are within your own community, within the people of God, and you're causing people to become slaves. What's up with that? What's up with that? Nehemiah asks them. He appeals to their conscience. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? And then look at verse 8. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Ever had that moment? When someone asks you a difficult question about your actions or about your words and they simply say to you, tell me about that. And you're speechless. They've appealed to your conscience and you're exposed and you know that what you've said or done is wrong. Well, that's what's happened here. They had no answer. And then Nehemiah, he, he appeals to God's word and he appeals to morality. Look at verse nine. What you're doing is not right. I love this. It's just straight up. What you're doing is wrong. It's not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? How can you do this when it's not right? It's against what God has said in his law. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're not doing that. What you're doing is not right. And then he says, how can you do this? How can you do this in the sight of God? He appeals to morality and he appeals to the word of God. And then he appeals to what this must look like to outsiders. Look what he says in verse nine. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? How is this making us look? How is how you're behaving reflecting God to the people outside? That's essentially Nehemiah's question. And if you think about their action, what it's saying about God is that he's selfish and he's greedy and he's self-centered and he's unkind and he's unloving and he's unjust and he's unmerciful. That's what their action is saying to the people who are looking at Jerusalem, trying to understand what God is like. And the people are left exposed, recognizing that what they're doing is not right, it's not good, it's not godly, and it's not reflecting well on God. And so what does Nehemiah do? He tells them what they need to do. And he's straight down the line. 
verse 10, then let the exacting anniversary stop. Stop charging interest. Stop charging interest on any loans. Not only that, verse 11, give back immediately the fields, the vineyards, the groves, the houses, and all of the interest you've taken. Repay it right now. Give it all back. And how do the people respond? Well, well, they've been cut to the heart. They've been exposed before God. And verse 12, they repent. Look at verse 12. We'll give it back and we'll not demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say, Nehemiah. He sees the problem. He addresses the problem. He has a solution to the problem and the people take it on board. And then finally, in verses 14 to 19, which we don't have time to look at, Nehemiah sets an example of how they're to, to love one another. He sets an example uh, uh, that they're to follow of how they're meant to, to love one another within this community. And I love it. There's a list of things he does. But he lends people money and he doesn't charge interest. He, he's entitled to, to take money from them for all of his kind of role as the governor. He's entitled to take food and money from them. And he never asks for it in 12 years. And then out of his own pocket, he feeds 150 of the Jews at his own table and the foreigners who come into the land. And Nehemiah, he, he sets this example of how to love in the hope that the people will follow it. As I finish very quickly, there are just a few things I think we need to take from this passage. The first is this, the greatest threat to this church may not come from outside, but may come from within inside. The greatest threat to the work we're doing, the greatest th threat to our community as, as brothers and sisters in Christ might come from within. And so each of us need to be aware of our words and our actions towards each other. And we need not to let the devil have a foothold in this place, in our hearts or minds, in how we treat each other. That is the first thing. The second thing we see is that whenever problems arise, we've got to deal with them. This morning, are there problems in your life that you need to deal with? Are there problems in your house you need to deal with? Are there problems in your mind you need to go to a counselor and deal with? Are there problems in your wider family circle that you need to deal with? Are there problems within this church that need to be dealt with? We're not to sidestep things, but in a godly way, we're to approach the problems and think about them and have solutions to them. And this morning I want to say, and I've said this a number of times, I feel the Lord is, is giving us passage after passage recently about internal relationships, but I want to say it again. If there are issues between you as brothers and sisters in Christ, the passive aggressiveness is not godly and good. What is godly and good is resolution and restoration. If that needs to happen, be brave and do it. But the last thing I want us to see in this passage is the command of Jesus Christ. The command of Christ to us. Jesus says this, and it's on the screen from John's Gospel. A new command I give to you, and it's not new, it's a renewed command. It's a command I'm giving you again, a command you've forgotten. A command I, I was given in Leviticus. It's, I'm renewing this command to you, I'm, I'm giving you this charge again. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In two verses, Jesus says that we're to love one another three times. We're to love one another. But the first bit is key. As I have loved you, love one another. It's all well and good to try our best to love each other. It's all well and good to rehearse those lovely characteristics as love in 1 Corinthians 13 and say, do you know what, today I'm going to do this. I'm going to be patient and I'm going to be kind and I'm going to do all of these things. That, that's, that's okay to try to do that, but you'll never be able to do it. Because the only way that we can ever love each other is when we receive the love of Christ. When we're blown away by his love for us. When we receive his forgiveness. When we receive his love. When we receive his patience. When we're delighted by the love of Christ and receive that. It's only then we're going to be able to love one another. And this morning my appeal to you, brother or sister who has not received Christ who's not received his forgiveness, who's not received his love, who's not received his mercy, who whenever you, you hear about the love of Christ, you understand it in your head, but you've never experienced it in your life because you're rejecting it. Oh, friend, would you receive it this morning? Would you let him love you? Would you let him forgive you? Would you let him be patient with you? Would you let him be kind to you? Would you stop resisting him and receive his love? Love one another. Let Christ's love reign in you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your love for us is completely incomprehensible. We're so small and we're so flawed, so insignificant whenever we look at the scale of the universe. And yet you love us and yet you're kind to us and you're patient with us and you forgive all of our sins in Christ. Oh Lord, we, we want to love each other, but Lord, we know we need to receive and enjoy your love for us. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit that you would make your love not just something we understand with our minds, but something we experience in our lives. Help us to experience your love in you and afresh. Help us to receive your forgiveness and you and afresh. And, Lord, having experienced your love afresh, help us, Lord, to love one another. Lord, thank you for the work you're calling us to do as a congregation. Thank you for the good relations that are in this place. But Lord, help us watch out for the evil one and never give him a foothold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.